Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. This is episode 24, and our guest today is Will Leonard. Will's an old friend. We went to the same elementary school, middle school, high school, college, um, so we go way back. He's a really cool guy. He is going to talk to us today about the timber industry, more specifically about what it's like to be a forester here in Northwest Florida. He's going to talk to us about how he got started in the industry, kind of how his family got him into it, about how to build a relationship with customers, what goes into timber harvesting, prepping the land, all of that. And he's also going to talk to us today about the impact that Hurricane Michael has had on Northwest Florida. Uh, Today is September 3rd, 2019, and Hurricane Dorian is currently hitting the Bahamas and slowly moving up South Florida. And it's definitely causing a lot of people here in North Florida to have a lot of flashbacks to when we had Hurricane Michael just over a year ago. And Will's going to talk to us about kind of how it's almost decimated the timber industry here in Northwest Florida. He's going to tell us how we lost 72 million tons of timber, which equals roughly a 10-year supply. And it's crazy to think about. And we'll, we'll talk more about some crazy stats. And he wanted me to touch base on some, some more stuff. Florida timber, there is over 17 million acres in, of timber in Florida. And that produces over 30,000 jobs. There's 74 wood-using mills. There's 760-plus manufacturers of paper and wood products. Or the timber industry gives the state of Florida $25 billion in revenue. That also includes $6.5 billion of income for people in the industry. It's a great industry. It's got a positive message. It not only helps with environmental stewardship, but also provides a lot of jobs for a lot of people. A lot of times in a lot of rural communities like in Bluntstown and Malone and Chipley and all these little small towns in northwest Florida, they've got a really cool slogan called Working Forests Work. And another really cool stat is 80% of the timber in Florida is grown in northwest Florida, where we have 20% of the population. So it's a great conversation. We're going to talk about all things forestry related. Again, this is episode 24 with Will Leonard. 
Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. Will Leonard, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Trevor. Doing well. How are you today? I'm doing well, man. Well, hey, I just want to say again, thanks for being on the podcast. We go back a super long way, you know, like same elementary school, middle school, high school, college. Our parents both taught together, so we've had the pleasure of knowing each other for a good long while. That's right. A long time. Both uh, proud alumnuses of of car school. Oh, 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 CarTech, the Institute of Higher Learning, as some of them say. So, so you work in the timber industry in Northwest Florida, correct? Yes, that's correct. Tell me how you got started in that and kind of what your background was in agriculture and kind of how you got started to being interested in working with timber. Sure. So to some extent, uh, I, was, I was born into it, Trevor. Um, I am the fifth generation uh, in my family uh, to work in the timber industry in Calhoun County, Florida. My grandfather's uh, grandfather uh, came down uh, into this part of the world from North Carolina uh, with his family uh, just prior uh, to the turn of, of the 20th century uh, and uh, followed the naval stores uh, industry uh, into Florida. So they would would follow uh, the, the longleaf pine forest, the natural uh, virgin timber, uh, longleaf pine forest, as it was being harvested, uh, they, they followed it south into Florida. Florida, the, the panhandle here, was some of the last of the, the virgin longleaf pine forest uh, to be harvested uh, and to be used in the, the naval stores industry. Now, the naval stores industry, it, it involved uh, ship masts and, and that kind of thing in some lumber, but primarily uh, that was turpentine, uh, the production of, of turpentine and, and the resin was used uh, to caulk uh, ships and, and for many other things. Uh, but one of the primary uh, uses was in, in, in caulking, sealing wooden ships. And that was why they called it uh, the naval stores uh, industry. So they followed uh, that industry uh, into the panhandle of Florida uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, from there, my family stayed in this part of the world uh, and uh, have been in, involved in the timber industry here uh, since the early 1900s. My great-grandfather, uh, Lee and Durham, uh, was uh, in the uh, uh, pulpwood uh, business. He was a pulpwooder. Uh, my grandfather, uh, Hayes Leonard, went to work uh, for him. Uh, after uh, he graduated from the University of Florida. It didn't hurt that he married his daughter, uh, so that was kind of a natural end for a job, uh, and he worked uh, in this part of, of the world, and then he had uh, the opportunity uh, to buy some timberland uh, when he was uh, in his late 40s, early 50s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, 1970s, 1980s, and uh, uh, then my dad uh, worked uh, with and, and for uh, my grandfather on that property for his career. Uh, my brother Michael and I uh, are both graduate foresters. Uh, I went to uh, Auburn University, War Eagle, 
and Michael is a Gator. He graduated from the University of Florida, uh, and together we make up the, the fifth generation of, of, of foresters, of, of people uh, in the timber industry uh, in our family. Uh, growing up and being around the timber industry, uh, seeing my father and, and grandfather uh, manage the land, that uh, really instilled in me a, a sense of, of stewardship uh, and a passion for growing uh, the forest, managing the forest uh, in a responsible and a sustainable way because that was the example uh, that had been set for me. Now, when I graduated from high school, I'd been involved in uh, agriculture education and the Future Farmers of America organization in high school uh, and um, had, had been exposed uh, to uh, more of agriculture uh, and uh, to more of, of the forest industry uh, through that. But when I graduated high school in 2008, that was uh, during uh, the midst of the Great Recession. And uh, my grandfather, he said, that just, you know, there are very few jobs in the forest industry. Uh, the last thing you want to do is, is to go into uh, the forest industry. So uh, I listened to him at the time. Uh, even though that was the, the direction that I wanted to go, and, and I did a, a stint uh, in ag education. Uh, and that, that really, uh, even though I didn't stick with that as a major, has been a, a very good thing uh, for me in my career. The uh, communication skills and, and some of the classes that I picked up uh, in that major, like educational psychology, learning about people's uh, different communication and learning styles uh, has benefited me in my uh, forestry career. So I uh, stuck with ag education for a couple of years and then to the angst of my parents, uh, kind of changed horses in the middle of the race and switched to uh, my major to forestry and went to uh, Auburn University, uh, was there, made uh, some of the, the closest friends uh, that I have. Uh, there are, um, are four of us that we were in uh, group projects. Auburn uh, is, is, they really believe in their curriculum uh, in, in team building, teamwork, and, and group projects uh, because most often that's the, the setting, the environment that we work in once we get out into the industry. So uh, there were four of us that were, were randomly assigned to a group, uh, Travis Watley, uh, Grayson Matthews, Chase Luker, and myself uh, in Auburn's uh, summer practicum. And uh, we became fast friends. Uh, and after that, every group project that we had, uh, we were together uh, anytime we got a, a chance to choose who was going to be in our group. And, and we got all got to be really good friends, uh, have been in each other's weddings, uh, and, and stayed close uh, ever since. Uh, ever since we graduated. Uh, after uh, graduation, I took a job with, uh, they were the Rock 10 Corporation at the time. They're now uh, merged with Mead West Baco and our uh, West Rock uh, Corporation out of Norcross, Georgia, uh, just outside Atlanta. Um, they own pulp and paper and, and packaging uh, mills uh, and facilities uh, all across the, uh, the continental U.S. as well as uh, some other countries. Uh, 
um, worked for them for uh, about a year as an associate procurement forester. My duties included building, maintaining, and, and managing open market supplier relationships and gathering uh, local market data to, to understand market trends and work within the overall procurement strategy to price tracks. I monitored uh, compliance with uh, the Sustainable Forestry Initiative uh, and then um, logging site compliance uh, with the State of Florida Best Management Practices for Silviculture. Uh, from there, I went to work for American Forest Management uh, they're the largest private forestry consultant in the U.S. Started out working out of their Haven office and then had a chance to move to their Mariana office. In the Mariana office, I managed uh, AFM's private landowner uh, and industrial uh, TMO clients. Um, uh, their uh, private landowner, non-industrial private forest owner, NIPF clients. That was a, a growing uh, segment to their business out of their Mariana office uh, and I worked with private landowners uh, to establish what their goals were for uh, their property uh, and then uh, help them put in a plan in place uh, to uh, reach those goals uh, and then I managed uh, two TMO or Timberland Investment Management Organization more uh, large-scale industrial clients uh, for, uh, for AFM out of that office as well and, and working for them. Uh, I developed and implemented budgets, harvest plans, and, and silvicultural practices uh, to, uh, to meet their goals. Uh, and then uh, in October of last year, uh, Hurricane Michael uh, impacted uh, the Florida Panhandle on October 10th, uh, and it kind of threw a monkey wrench in, in all of uh, our plans and uh, uh, disrupted everybody's life. Uh, so at that time, um, my brother and I started uh, the company uh, that uh, I own and, and work for now, uh, Deer Point Timber Solutions. Uh, and since that time, we've performed uh, timber damage appraisals uh, for income tax casualty loss deductions for landowners uh, that have uh, enough remaining cost basis in their timber to warrant an appraisal. Uh, and uh, we've also assisted landowners in the uh, impacted area uh, with formulating and implementing uh, salvage harvest and reforestation strategies. All really good stuff. Um, man, I remember you were one of the main reasons I ran for state office in, in FFA because you were one of the, I think you and Stuart Herndon, I mean, it might've changed, but you and Stuart Herndon are the only people from Bluntstown High School that have won multiple national titles. I mean, you won it in forestry and the National Public Speaking Competition. So so tell me a little bit about what's it like to manage some timberland? Like, what's that process through? What do you do to maintain it? What do you do to check on it? Kind of walk us through, like, your, your, your typical day in managing some timber. Sure, Trevor. So basically, if you remember in, in FFA, you had the, the three-circle model where you had uh, the career development events, the classroom education, and then the supervised agricultural experience, where all of those things uh, wrapped together, uh, and it was it was kind of a, a continuous circle. There was overlap between all things, uh, all of those different things, uh, and it was a, a, a continuous cycle throughout the year uh, for a member where 
you'd be in your agriculture class, uh, you'd be a member of the FFA, and then uh, during the year, and, and especially during the summer, you'd be uh, participating in your uh, SAE, Supervised Agricultural Experience. To a large degree, uh, managing land is that sort of cyclical relationship as well. So you're, you're, it's, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. It's, it's hard to determine which happened first, but you, you have to have both. So what that looks like uh, at the day-to-day level would be throughout the course of a year, uh, when you're managing timberland, you've got different things going on. And at different times of the year, you have different activities that you're doing. So at some point in the year, you've harvested a track of timber. You, the, the timber was uh, mature biologically, uh, and it had reached financial maturity as well. As a part of the landowner's uh, objectives, that stand, geographic area of timber, uh, had been harvested. That's what most folks know as a, a clear cut or final harvest, where all of the, the merchantable timber would have been removed from a stand of timber that was biologically mature and had reached financial maturity as well. So the merchantable trees have been removed. At that point, you start uh, the process of reforesting uh, that stand. Typically, the way that that works is in uh, the growing season, late growing season, sometime during the summer, we would do a chemical uh, site preparation where we'd apply a herbicide uh, to uh, the clear-cut site. This is before any new trees have been planted. And what the chemical site prep does, it buys your crop trees a head start. I'm talking mostly about pine plantation silviculture in, in the southeast because that, for the most part, is, is what I've done. Uh, you would chemically site prepare an area, and then depending on um, the nature of that particular area, what type of soil, uh, where the water table is, whether it stands in water after it rains, how much debris is there, you may do some type of mechanical site preparation. For example, if it's a site that really stands in water, has a perched water table. Um, you need to, to bed that site. You would use heavy equipment to create a bed that would be uh, 18 to, to 20 inches tall and roughly 36 inches wide. And then you'd, you'd, make that, you'd make those beds every 10 to 12 feet apart across that site, rows of, of beds, uh, much like uh, you do for, for other types of row crop agriculture, that, that gets your trees, you plant onto those beds, that gets them up uh, above that perched water table. Most pine species, uh, they, they need water, but they don't like to, uh, to stand in water all the time. So in, in wetter areas, bedding is a, is a practice. Uh, to, to get your trees up above a perched water table. So you've done chemical site preparation, and then you may have to do some mechanical site preparation. So all of that's going on over the course of your summer, early fall. Uh, then as we move into the 
uh, winter months, December to early March, the sites that you've prepared, you would plant. Now you have to start planting for that early in the year with ordering uh, your seedlings. You'd have a number of seedlings that you'd plant per acre. So you've got to keep in mind, all right, how many acres am I going to have ready? Uh, how many seedlings do I need to order? And you've got to keep in mind that the nurseries that grow the seedlings that we plant in the industry, they have to plant uh, these seedlings uh, in anticipation uh, ahead of time uh, because the, the seedlings that we plant are actually uh, about a year old. Uh, so you've got to, to give the nursery an estimate pretty early in the year for the acres that you're going to plant. So there's, there's a lot of, of forecasting uh, and educated guesswork that goes into all of this, a lot of planning. So we get to the winter months and we're planting our trees. Uh, it's, it's become very common to uh, plant with mechanical uh, machine planters uh, that are typically pulled behind a dozier crawler type tractor with a V-blade on the front of uh, the dozier that just kind of moves the, the debris on the site out of the way and creates a, uh, a good planting area to put your trees into. Uh, another common form of planting, either on steep or wet ground or ground that's been bedded, uh, is hand planting. Uh, and, and we have really, uh, really great folks that, that do that work. Um, the crews of men that will, will come in uh, and they'll plant. And it's just it's amazing to watch those guys work, Trev. Typically, I, I've seen these guys plant about 10 acres a day uh, a piece. And when you consider uh, that, you know, they'll be planting somewhere between 500 and 700 uh, trees per acre, uh, those guys are planting uh, somewhere between five and 7,000 trees per day. Uh, and they actually, for the most part, they get paid uh, by the seedling that they plant. And I've seen these guys, Trev, run from the middle of a field they were planting back to where you would have uh, boxes of trees on the, the on a road like on the edge of a, a field they were planting and they would run back to get more trees to plant just the work ethic uh, is is amazing with with those crews of, of men they'll, they'll carry a box of, of trees and a, a bag uh, that they wear on a harness and they, there'll be a bag on either side of them to on their right and their left and they'll put that box of trees and the box of trees will weigh roughly 35 to 50 pounds and they'll, they'll put those bare root seedlings that are anywhere from 10 to, to 15 inches in length they'll put them uh, in uh, you know half on one side half on the other and typically with their right hand they'll have either a tool called a hoedad or a dibble bar. They'll take that uh, implement and they'll throw it down into the ground where they're going to plant the tree. They'll rock it back and forth to create a hole, an opening to put the tree in. They'll pick it up with their left hand. They'll grab one seedling out of uh, the bag uh, that they're carrying over the shoulder. They'll stick it in the ground. They'll take the hoedad or the dibble. They'll come behind the seedling they've just planted. They'll rock it two or three times to close the hole. 
uh, around the seedling that they've planted, stomp it in with their heel and move on to the next tree. Uh, just really brutally hard work uh, and they, they do an amazing, amazing job uh, at it. So now that we've got our trees in the ground, uh, it's uh, the end of winter, we're moving into springtime and, and depending on uh, the uh, client or uh, landowner uh, that has planted the trees, um, you know, from there uh, with a, a private landowner, they may step back and, and not do anything. Uh, and it, it may be 15 or 20 years before they come back and, and do any other treatment on that stand other than monitor uh, its growth. Now, for uh, some private landowners and for uh, a majority of the industrial clients that I've worked for, they take a, a more intensive approach. They uh, more intensively manage uh, their forest. So uh, in that first growing season, they'll do another herbicide application, a selective herbicide that won't harm the trees. They'll spray after they've planted. And for the, the most part, uh, that will be a, a residual herbicide uh, that they'll spray that um, neutralizes uh, the, the grasses, uh, the weeds. They call it a, a pre-emergent herbicide uh, that, that neutralizes that competition before it sprouts. And it, it buys your, your young seedlings a, a, a head start in that first growing season when they're most fragile, uh, when they're really competing uh, for water right at the, the surface level of the ground. Uh, if you remove the, the competition around them, you get a lot better survival and a, a lot better first year growth. Uh, a lot of clients will also elect uh, to fertilize uh, during that first growing season. Uh, and that can, can really boost uh, growth for, for several years uh, in a stand of trees. So you've got that going on the first year. And then as you move through that calendar year, you've also got other things going on during the same time uh, in stands that are what you'd call mid-rotation. So they're at roughly the halfway point of their life. And a, a good general rule of thumb there is the, the average life of a, a pine stand uh, in the, the um, uh, southeast uh, United States is roughly 30 years. Uh, so the midway point would be 15 years. And at that midway point, uh, usually you'll do uh, a thinning harvest. So we're removing some of the trees so that your very best trees in that stand have more room to grow, they've got more sunlight, they've got more nutrients, and they can better occupy the site and grow into larger trees that are in higher value product classes that bring more money uh, to the landowner uh, at final harvest. So you're doing those thinning harvests, you're conducting those throughout the year uh, during the springtime, during the same time where you're doing uh, your fertilization of young stands, juvenile stands, we'd call them. You'd also be doing your mid-rotation uh, fertilization. A lot of clients like to fertilize after they thin, kind of to give uh, their trees, uh, very best trees, a shot in the arm uh, to boost growth uh, as they're moving towards uh, their final harvest. Um, and then 
that summer when you'd be doing um, chemical site prep, uh, you also uh, may be uh, doing mid-rotation woody release. So you've seen uh, the panhandle of Florida. At times, I like to say we're almost a, a, a subtropical rainforest here. It, something is going to grow if you accept uh, the, the book of Genesis and, and the curse then, you know, typically if, if we leave things alone, what we're going to get are, are weeds. And that's definitely applicable to uh, <laughs> the panhandle of Florida. We, we, we get all sorts of weeds and, and bushes. and they, they suck nutrients away from your crop trees, and they really don't offer uh, any benefit by and large to, to wildlife either. So doing a, a herbicide uh, application after you've thinned uh, really uh, helps to set uh, the um, uh, the forest back just like you had had done a prescribed fire and the the, the herbicide application tends to to be a lot less risky uh, than doing a, a prescribed burn um, some clients like fire uh, especially with uh, the longleaf pine species, if, if that's the species they prefer, and especially if wildlife uh, is one of their objectives. Uh, they love uh, prescribed fire uh, if that's uh, one of their objectives. Uh, so, you know, you may be burning at different times of the year, either dormant season, winter uh, fires, or if, if you're looking uh, to shift the, the species composition, understory species composition in your forest, you may do a growing season burn. Uh, it, it all depends on what your objectives are. Uh, and during that whole cycle, you're also doing final harvests to set up the next year's reforestation. So it's a, it's a cycle uh, where it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. It's hard to tell what comes first, but you have all of these cyclical things going on throughout the course of a year uh, as you're managing a forest. Right. That's cool. Yeah, I can imagine it gets super complicated trying to manage all the land. Um, so whenever they go through and thin thin some of the timber, I mean, that's going to be used for paper products, right? Like paper, cardboard, toilet paper, just random paper products? Yes, for the most part, that's true. Uh, because thinning typically occurs uh, at the mid-rotation point, you're talking about younger trees that aren't as large. Uh, and because they're younger uh, they typically don't have really dense fiber uh, that you need for uh, structural lumber. Uh, there is some structural lumber that uh, will come out of trees removed in, in thinnings, uh, but by and large, your, your statement is accurate. Uh, during that, that first thinning, most of, of that uh, material is going to be used uh, for pulp uh, and paper products or some type of, of woody biomass product uh, in Panhandle here, Cottondale, Florida, uh, in Viva, has uh, a pellet mill. Uh, and they buy uh, pine and hardwood, but they'll buy uh, pine that uh, is of the same size and, and age class as what you typically think of as, as pulp wood, as, as what's bought by uh, a pulp mill. Uh, and they'll turn that into uh, wood pellets uh, that are used as a, uh, a fuel source, a clean fuel source, primarily uh, in Europe for uh, um, uh, energy production for um, 
different manufacturing facilities. Okay, gotcha. And what would you say are kind of the most popular timber species here in Northwest Florida? You said they're they're longleaf pine or loblolly pine, right? So there are really uh, the big three uh, that you you see in uh, the Northwest Florida, uh, Florida in general, um, uh, loblolly pine, slash pine, and longleaf pine. Uh, longleaf pine uh, is what uh, was most native uh, to this part of the world. Uh, it evolved and adapted to this landscape. Uh, it has some some really cool uh, adaptations that make it uh, really fire tolerant. And the the landscape across uh, the the whole southeast, longleaf was the dominant species because fire occurred at, at regular intervals. Uh, most areas, whether uh, and the the primary cause of fire was uh, lightning strike, but whether it was by lightning or uh, Native Americans or early colonial settlers that burned uh, the landscape, the landscape burned every one to five years. And uh, species like loblolly pine and slash pine were relegated to the the wetter areas, the marginal uh, areas that uh, were wet enough that they didn't burn as frequently. Those species, when they're smaller in the seedling stage, are not fire tolerant at all. So longleaf uh, evolved as as uh, the the primary species across the southeast. Now it is a, a slower growing species and as the southeast has become more and more populated uh, and you have more of a, a rural urban interface where uh, fire um, becomes much less common uh, and much more dangerous as a management tool, longleaf begins to, to fade uh, in its ability to compete with the other vegetation because it, it really had evolved and adapted to an ecosystem where fire was prevalent and fire kept out a lot of the other competition. So it uh, really blossomed in that environment. And when uh, fire was really removed from the landscape uh, after uh, the 1930s, 1940s in Florida, uh, longleaf pine has, has steadily uh, declined in, in prevalence ever since. And then as um, the uh, pulp and, and paper uh, industry really took hold in the 30s, there began to be a need for uh, plantation forestry and, and faster growing species. So the industry uh, and our land grant uh, universities began to, and extension agencies began to experiment with different species. And uh, the two species that they primarily experimented with were loblolly pine and slash pine. And uh, they've both at the, the university level and then within private industry, there's been just tons of research over the last 50 to 60 years that have been done on the genetics of those two species and just uh, as we uh, have bred different uh, crops uh, within row crop agriculture or we have uh, bred 
different breeds of livestock for certain characteristics. Loblolly pine and slash pine have been bred over the last 50 to 60 years uh, to promote uh, more disease tolerance, uh, faster growth, and better quality. And those species are the primary species uh, that you'll see planted across the southeast. Uh, in Florida, uh, slash pine is probably, uh, well not probably, without a doubt, it is the number one uh, species. It's well adapted to the, the coastal flatwoods uh, that are prevalent uh, in uh, Florida uh, from the Panhandle East uh, into to Northeast and Central Florida. And then loblolly pine would be uh, a second, uh, the, the second most common species in the state. And then if you spread that out over uh, the Southeast, loblolly would by far be the most common species with slash pine being a distant second uh, and then longleaf pine uh, a distant third. Uh, so those are your, your three major species uh, that you'll find uh, in the industry. Okay, and I, I'm not really sure if this is just what I've heard about longleaf or just all pines in general, but did longleaf, and this might be one of the reasons why they kind of died off, is that their pine cones, in order to germinate, they needed that extreme heat from the from the control burns or just from the wildfires to help them germinate. Is that right? There are some pine species that are evolved to to need uh, the the extreme heat from fire uh, to to open their their cones and allow the seed to fall. Uh, longleaf is is not one of those species. Uh, sand pine, which is is a, a species that is common to Florida, does need uh, fire to open their cones and release their seed. But but longleaf doesn't need to have that. The the primary adaptation uh, for longleaf uh, that allowed it to to thrive uh, above all other pine species uh, in a ecosystem where fire was prevalent was that it has a, a grass stage. And uh, as a, after its seed has fallen and germinated, instead of shooting up into a, a young tender seedling, it'll actually have a grass stage where it has, its, its needles look like a, a bundle of, of grass and they protect the terminal bud on that young seedling. And when fire sweeps through, it'll burn the needles back, but they protect that terminal bud. And where the young tender seedlings of another species would be destroyed by fire, longleaf is fire tolerant. That's not to say that fire won't kill longleaf. A hot enough fire will destroy longleaf just like everything else. But uh, it is far more fire tolerant than any other species. And that adaptation allowed it uh, to outcompete any other tree on the landscape when fire was a, a, a big part of the ecosystem. Okay, gotcha. That makes a lot more sense. With with forestry, what what exactly is what does success look, look like to you? Is it um, working with some really happy customers at the end of the day that just had a really good successful crop of timber? What what does success look like for you? I'm a, a pretty I'm a I'm a hands-on learner and uh, concrete guy. I, I like examples. So I, I'll give you an example of uh, a, a success to me uh, working with AFM uh, and uh, the, the private landowner NIPF clients 
uh, that they had. I had the opportunity uh, to work with a, a lady named Patricia Branion, and Miss Branion uh, had uh, taught school overseas, uh, was um, an English teacher on uh, military bases uh, for uh, her entire professional career. And when she retired and, and moved back to the States, she wanted, had, had grown up around the farm. She wanted to, to reconnect with the land. So she took part of uh, her retirement savings and purchased uh, some timberland uh, from the St. Joe Corporation in Jackson County, Florida, the northeast portion of Jackson County, Florida, uh, near Malone, Florida. Uh, she had managed that piece of property for uh, six to eight years and uh, had a, a really nice, uh, beautiful piece of property. She had had the timber thinned once and had had a less than positive experience with selling her timber and uh, was somewhat wary uh, to, uh, to, to sell uh, the rest of her remaining timber, but it uh, was getting older. It had some disease problems uh, and had, had begun to reach um, biologic uh, maturity, and it was it was time to remove uh, that stand of timber and begin a new forest. Um, she contacted AFM, uh, and I, I went out to meet with her to talk through the talk through the process with her uh, of selling her timber, uh, what that was going to look like, and she decided to do business with us, and uh, I was able to walk her through step-by-step step. the the sale of her timber was able uh, it was a, a a dry track uh, with some large timber uh, and uh, the the forest uh, industry the the timber market uh, is like any other free market it's governed by supply and demand when we have a, a really wet season the availability of really nice tracks of timber uh, that can be logged with heavy equipment uh, because they have good ground conditions. When, when that supply uh, diminishes, uh, the price for the sites that are there that have really nice timber and good ground conditions go up. So that was one thing that I, I explained to Ms. Brannion was that, you know, you, you have, you really have something here that we can market. We need to be patient. We really need to do a good job marketing this timber. Uh, we did a timber cruise for her so that she knew exactly what she had. We forecasted what it was going to bring and uh, when we needed to sell it. I waited for uh, the market uh, that I was looking for and sold it to uh, a buyer that had incentive. And uh, they moved onto the track and harvested it uh, within a couple of weeks. Uh, after we had sold it uh, from Miss Branion, had the opportunity to get her uh, to come out uh, and to to observe the harvesting, to explain to her what was going on, uh, the different pieces of equipment, what they were all doing, uh, how the timber was being sorted by product and how it was being merchandised, how we were supervising the harvest so that uh, each tree was put into the the highest value product class that it could be put into so that she uh, maximized uh, the the return on the the timber that she had 
Uh, and uh, at the, the end of that process, um, she wrote me a letter expressing her gratitude for uh, us having walked her through uh, the process, having gotten her uh, the most for her timber that we could, for having made sure that the harvesting occurred in accordance with Florida's best management practices for silviculture, that we looked after the land like it was our own. Uh, she had a gate uh, that needed to be put back up. I, I went up there uh, on a weekend to put the gate back up, and she she uh, wrote in her letter uh, that you know we treated the land uh, like it was our own, uh, and that uh, if she ever had any timber uh, to sell again, uh, that she would use us, and that uh, was one of the most rewarding uh, experiences. Uh, that I've had in my career and, uh, you know, to, to be able to, to really do a good job for somebody, uh, to help them reach their goals for their forest, for managing their forest, uh, that's a success uh, to me. That's awesome, man. That's really cool to hear. It, uh, it sounds like it's not only is it important to kind of manage their timberland, but also super important to kind of build that relationship and kind of show them that you're going to do it the right way, protect their land and do it in all the way, the best ways possible. So that's really cool. I'm glad that's a really good success story. So you kind of touched base on it earlier about the impacts of Hurricane Michael. And I know you were on, what, Fox News a few weeks ago, kind of talking about it with um, the commissioner of ag and just kind of talking about the impacts that Hurricane Michael has had on the, the timber industry in Florida, which I heard, I don't know, months ago that at least in Northwest Florida, it has had a billion dollar impact just on timberlands. And I know like where we're from, Bluntstown and all those surrounding communities that rely so much on the timber farms, they're not really going to feel that economic impact until years later. So what what's kind of been going on in the industry since Hurricane Michael hit a few months ago? Sure. Um, so, uh, you're you're right on uh, with that billion dollar number, Trev. Um, the Florida Forest Service estimates that uh, roughly three million acres were impacted, uh, with an economic loss of 1.3 billion dollars uh, to the timber industry. Calhoun County, uh, the the county that you and I grew up in, has roughly 317,000 acres of forest land. Within uh, the the path of the hurricane, um, the the Florida Forest Service quantified damage uh, as being moderate, severe, and catastrophic. With catastrophic being greater than 50% of the stems of the trees uh, in a, a geographic area stand of trees uh, as having been either broken off blown over or leaning uh, greater than 45 degrees. And all of Calhoun County fell within uh, the catastrophic zone of uh, Hurricane Michael's uh, path of its devastation. So uh, there, there wasn't an area of forest in Calhoun County that wasn't devastated uh, by Hurricane Michael. Um, now, Looking at the the black and white numbers, there were 72 million tons. This is estimated by the Florida Forest Service. 72 million tons of timber uh, that were destroyed uh, as a result of Hurricane Michael. We all are familiar with what a, a log truck looks like. We've seen them up and down the highways. 
that 72 million tons of timber equates to 2.5 million log trucks. So I, I have a, a cousin who is an engineer that's a lot smarter than I am. And I asked him this. I said, I said, David, I said, if you took those two and a half million log trucks and you put them end to end, how many times would they wrap around the earth? And being an engineer, he knew the circumference of the earth off the top of his head, did a little quick math, a little over three times, Trev. If you put all of those trucks together, they would wrap around the earth a little more than three times. Wow. I, I mean, I can believe that after seeing all the timber that's down or destroyed, I, I can certainly believe it. That is that is an absolutely bonkers statistic. Wrap around the earth three and a half times and it's 2.5 million log trucks. That, to, to give you a little bit of perspective, cow, that, that's not the only wood that, you know, is, is, is harvested. And that's not just Calhoun County, but 72 million tons of of timber, of, of fiber, all right? That's 10 years supply of wood for uh, the, the local uh, mills that, that would have used that timber. After the hurricane, you had a lot of that timber that was either blown over or broken off. So you have a, a really short window that it's usable for the mills end products. Now the stuff that's leaning, You've got a little bit longer time frame, but at most, even on that, you may have 18 months, so a year and a half. So you've got 10 years worth of timber supply for our local mills. The, the very best of what was damaged, you've got 18 months, a year and a half to get it salvaged. There's just no way possible for... Uh, all of the damaged timber to be salvaged uh, and used before it gets to a point that uh, it's no longer suitable for the mill's end products. And if it's not suitable for their end products, they can't purchase it. So that leaves landowners, timber farmers, in a really tough predicament. They've got this land, and for most people, uh, in the county that we grew up in, they own 40, 50, 100 acres of land. Uh, it was land that has been in their family a couple of generations. It's something that was passed down to them uh, that many people counted on uh, for their retirement. Uh, they'd always viewed timber as basically being money in the bank. They had it sitting there uh, and they could harvest it you know, whenever they retired and that was going to be part of their retirement or they could harvest it when a child went to school and it would pay for part of their college, uh, or you know, when they had a medical bill, uh, that timber was sitting there and it was it was ready to be harvested. All of that was destroyed and wiped out. And not only is that potential source of income gone now, but they've got all of this debris, all of this timber that's been broken and blown over, uh, that's just on the ground. And to clean it up, uh, if it's not salvage harvested, uh, and to, to reforest is super, super expensive. We're talking hundreds of dollars per acre. And people just don't have uh, the, the disposable income to be able to do that. Uh, and even for individuals that may have 
the, the income to be able to shoulder that cost and reforest, um, such as, as people that, you know, retirement age, maybe have 401ks, IRAs, they can't take money that they're living off of and spend it on cleaning up their land and reforesting when they won't see a return on that timber that they've planted for maybe 15 or 20 years. So it really has put this area behind the eight ball, uh, both from an environmental standpoint and an economical standpoint. Environmental, I mean, that uh, the landscape has been changed. Uh, and to quote the, the Florida Forestry Association, working forests work. When you have landowners that are actively managing their forest and managing their land uh, and are abiding by uh, the state of Florida's best management practices for uh, silviculture. By the way, the, the Florida Forest Service says we have over 99% compliance with those standards in the state of Florida. So our, our people, our growers do an excellent job. Our harvesters, people in the industry do a wonderful job. Uh, they care about the environment. Following those standards and managing our forests protects our soil, uh, water, and air quality. Uh, as well as providing important wildlife habitat. And now that you've had these stands that have, have just been destroyed and people that don't have uh, any means uh, to, to clean those areas up and reforest, you just, you're looking at potentially widespread impacts to soil, water, and air quality and wildlife habitat. Um, and then economically, so, we haven't seen uh, a, a huge uh, impact to our local economy yet. I call it, for lack of a better term, the dead cat bounce. So, you know, if you if you had, you know, a, a situation where, you know, you, you jumped off of a building and you bounced before you, when you hit the ground the first time, you'd come up in the air again a little bit before you hit the ground the second time and didn't move again. Well, that essentially is where we're at right now. We're on that second bounce. That's a pretty and good analogy. I like that. We we are uh, we're we're in that second bounce. The salvage harvesting has kept uh, the the timber industry, as far as our our logging our loggers our logging force, busy. They've done well salvage harvesting because essentially they're they're in demand right now. Um, where they were competing for a scarce resource, timber. Now, landowners are competing for loggers. They're the scarce resource. So they have done well since the storm, and uh, they, they've done a, a really tough job. Logging is much more difficult in a salvage harvest environment where you have so much broken uh, and blown over debris. It makes the, the operational side of logging much more difficult. So you have seen, uh, you know, the loggers and the logging force and the people in, in that side of the industry and the mills have, have been getting just a glut of supply from the damaged timber. Everybody's trying to get as much up as fast as they can. That part of the, the, the industry's economy has been okay since the storm. Now, the actual grower has seen what they've been getting for timber drastically reduced. Uh, in most cases, it's one-tenth to one-quarter 
of what they were getting for their timber prior to uh, the storm. So they're getting pennies on the dollar for what they've grown for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So they're feeling the economic impacts right now and will continue to feel the economic impacts. Our local uh, logging force uh, is going to feel the impact when uh, salvage harvesting ends uh, and they have to move further afield to the east, to the west, to the north to get into areas uh, that weren't damaged by Hurricane Michael and they're going to be competing for a scarcer resource. So as that market becomes more competitive, their profit margins are going to shrink. Uh, you're going to see um, basically natural selection and free market take place and your, your logging force is going to be winnowed. And then your local mills, we're hopeful that outside of the really catastrophic uh, damage area, which is uh, roughly 30 to 40 miles wide, outside of that area, their wood baskets that they bring wood uh, into their mills from, timber trees into their mills from, there's still going to be uh, enough uh, of a, a wood uh, supply there uh, to keep those mills going uh, for the, the years to come until these areas that were devastated are reforested uh, and become mature enough to provide uh, merchantable timber uh, again. Now, we have seen since late May, early June, Congress uh, has passed and the president has signed a federal disaster relief aid bill uh, in the tune of uh, $19.1 billion. Um, there's been about a half a billion, uh, $484 million uh, allocated to Farm Service Agency, which is a part of uh, USDA uh, and FSA, Farm Service Agency's Emergency Forest Reforestation Program, EFRP. And that's a cost share program uh, to benefit uh, landowners whose timber was destroyed. And it's basically a 75-25 uh, match cost share program where the government, uh, USDA, will put up 75% of the cost to reforest and the landowner uh, will be responsible for the other 25. Now, the, the problem for a lot of folks is going to be coming up with that 25%. But that's a, that's a positive. Uh, and then there, there's also been some talk, uh, some money allocated for state block grants uh, like what was put in place uh, after Hurricane Irma in 2017 for uh, citrus producers in uh, South and Central Florida uh, in the form of indemnity or crop loss payments. Uh, and you know, really what a lot of people's uh, futures are, are hanging on is what happens uh, with uh, federal aid and the possibility of those crop loss payments. Uh, essentially, uh, landowners uh, need a shot in the arm, uh, an infusion of cash uh, to be able uh, to reforest their land uh, because the, the expense to clean it up and to reforest uh, when either they haven't been able to salvage harvest or they did salvage harvest and they got pennies on the dollar for their timber, uh, the costs of, of cleaning up their land and reforesting are just cost prohibitive. I guess time is only going to tell how well Northwest Florida does and how the timber industry is going to recover. And I've been super glad to hear about all the assistance programs that have been happening about 
kind of helping people clear their land. I had no idea that it would cost that much. I mean, I knew it would cost a lot, but I, I didn't know it would be that expensive to clear the land and then just to replant. And obviously, like you said, they're not going to get that profit until like 30 years down the road. So, I mean, there's a lot of difficult situations going on. Yes, and, and everybody everybody is, is kind of backed into a corner, but um, the, the forest industry has some really smart, resilient people, uh, and uh, they're working really hard. Uh, to um, uh, to recover, uh, and then uh, we all have, have been very fortunate uh, to have some really good people working on our side. Uh, Senators uh, Scott uh, and Rubio uh, have been uh, in um, our corner, uh, Northwest Florida's corner, uh, since day one. Um, our uh, representatives uh, have have been battling uh, as well. The head of the, the Florida Forest Service, uh, Jim Carls, uh, has gone above and beyond uh, to advocate uh, both at the uh, federal and state level uh, for uh, timber growers uh, here in Northwest Florida. Uh, Commissioner uh, of Agriculture, uh, Nikki Freed, uh, has uh, really gone to bat for uh, the panhandle and for the timber industry, uh, both at the state uh, and the federal level, uh, and then the uh, Florida Forestry Association, the uh, advocacy uh, and lobbyist group for uh, the forest industry in Florida uh, has been uh, just uh, beyond resilient uh, and dogged uh, in their their tireless uh, efforts uh, to um, secure uh, the, the aid uh, Northwest Florida and its uh, timber industry need uh, both at the state uh, and the federal level and, and would definitely uh, want to, to give a, a big shout out uh, to all of those folks and a, a huge thank you uh, for uh, for their help uh, in the past uh, nine, almost 10 months now. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, yeah, I'm hearing more like my grandpa and, you know, Mladdy Williams and Bluntstown. I mean, he knows he knows everybody who knows everybody. So he's been talking that so much is going on to help kind of rebuild the state, rebuild the forest program. So, uh, well, Will, this has been a really cool conversation about all things forestry, about all things you're doing. Thanks for telling us a little bit about what you do as a forester and kind of how you guys are trying to rework, kind of undo all the damage done by Hurricane Michael. We wish you nothing but the best of luck. I'll see you actually soon. Are you going to be at our fantasy football draft in a few days? Absolutely look forward to it every year. I'm not hey. good. I, I usually draft one of the worst teams, but I always look forward to it. Hey, man, at least you're consistent. I am no better. I hope I can finish above next to last this year, so we'll see how it goes. Well, Will, thanks for being on, man. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Trev. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, everyone. We're trying to make things easier for you to listen to the podcast. We are now a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, and that means you can now find us on an additional platform. We're now available on the Waypoint app on your Apple TV, Roku, or Amazon Fire Stick, smart TVs like Samsung, and even game systems. While you're on there, check out over 2,500 of the best hunting and fishing shows and short films, download the app, and watch and listen anywhere.